Amen. Well, uh, let's pray together real quick. Father God, we thank you so much for this opportunity that we've had to um, just participate, to, to bear witness to the public profession of faith in Christ uh, that we saw in McKinsey and Felice. And God, what a, what a beautiful testimony it was and what a visible display of the unity we have in you as we are buried with you in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life. So God, I pray that, um, that that sense of unity, that, that, that connection that we have with you ought to uh, just spill over in our relationship to one another, that we might realize that, that uh, our connection, our being united with Christ is not just me and Jesus and that's it, but it, it has its effect on how I relate to everyone else. God, open our eyes to, to think um, deeply and wisely about uh, Christian unity as we talk about that today. God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be upon us and that the powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted. Amen. Today we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 42. We're continuing in our study of Mark, and that's page 845 in the Bibles there in the chairs. I really want you guys to look along uh, and read along and just kind of be looking at it over and over. So grab that Bible, use it. That's what it's there for, okay? Um, you know, we live in a very, very divisive culture. We, we live in a culture that wants to segregate and separate and label and define and strip and, 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 and just dis, disunify everything. And we do it over the silliest things, guys. I mean, we do it over our sports teams. We do it over music and movies. We do it over the clothes we wear, the food that we like. We, we fight over whether or not Eli was blind, you know. We do. <laughs> no, it's true. Uh, and, and, and we'll fight over these things, man. We, we will fight over them. It's so funny. We'll set up clubs. We'll set up cliques. We'll set up groups that in order to distinguish ourselves, to separate ourselves from everyone else. And, and it's just amazing. Like, have you ever paid attention to Facebook groups? Like, why? Like, there, there's a Facebook group for hating dolphins, Right? Like, like somehow I've got to separate myself from everyone else that is amiable towards Flipper. Right? I, I can't be around him. There's, there's groups set up for those who flip their pillows to get to the cool side, you know, to separate themselves from everyone else that is not as cool as the other side of the pillow. Right? And we, we do it all the time. It, it, it's just crazy. It is nuts. But yet we do it. And you know what? The Christian church, Christians are no different. It, I, I was reading through Christianity Today recently, and they, they said that there are approximately 38,000 self-professed Christian denominations. 38,000, all professing to be Christ, Christians, all professing to follow Christ, but there's 38,000 different ones, and that's here in America, right? That's insane, right? It's just, it's seemingly unbelievable. Now, I, there are denominations for good reason, all right? There, there are good reasons to, to want to be separate and unique, whether that be for uh, pursuing purity or truth or biblical conviction. But there are also a lot of denominations. There are a lot of groups that exist for less noble causes. I mean, even our own denomination, as much as it is done to redeem itself, did not start off for the right reason. We are part of the Southern Baptist Convention, a convention that was established in 1845 to separate themselves from the Northern 
Baptist churches. You see what I'm talking about, right? Now, that's our history. That No one here subscribes to anything like that. But there's an example of a division that happens even in our own life that affects us today uh, that, that is less than honorable. So how do we think about these, these things? I mean, you know, we, we see a lot of people rise up and they're just frustrated. They're angry about all this rampant sectarianism that we see among Christians today. And they, they begin to say, you know what, we need to forget all that. We just need to unite, Right. We just need to join together. We need to be united in one big banner underneath Christ. Right? Uh, and, and in one sense, they're right, because the disunity flies in the face of Scripture in some ways, but, but really, is that the way we need to think about it? I mean, these are the kinds of people that, that promote uh, slogans like doctrine divides, but something like love unites or mission unites or, or service unites. They're the kind of people that, that say, we claim no creed but Christ, no law but love. And some even go so far as to say that heresy is better than schism. Is that really how we should think about Christian unity? Is it really that cut and dry? Is it unity or truth? Like those are somehow incompatible, right? We are together in Christ no one agrees on exactly who Christ is, but at least we stand together. Is that what we go for? I would argue no. We, we can't be unified if we're each kind of practicing our own individual ideologies and, and we don't agree on anything. We just don't talk about it. That's not unity. So how do we think about it? The reality is there's a balance. There's a balance between how we think about unity and truth. These are not incompatible terms. It's not either or. We need to be unified in truth. We need to pursue truth for the purpose of unity. They go together. And so as we think about Christian unity, we have to think about it in those terms. It's not one thing or another. We have to think about them together. And that's really what we're going to be talking about this morning. Because you see, true Christian unity requires pure motives and careful discernment as we seek to glorify Christ. So if you would, look with me in your Bibles. Again, it's Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 38, page 845. It says, John said to Jesus... Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for the one who does a mighty work in my name will <clears throat> for no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon be able afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If we are going to pursue true Christian unity, it requires pure motives. Now, the unity folks, those guys that, that promote, you know, no doc, you know, doctrine divides, love unites or whatever, they grab a hold of this one and they love it. They say, look here, Jesus says it himself. Anyone who is not against us is for us. If we're just for one another, we're not against one another, then we're for Jesus. It's sweet. We can be united around this. And that's what they want to say. But, in fact, we, we have to come to this passage. We have to carefully consider the context. Otherwise, we're going to misinterpret it. 
right? The context is everything in understanding this. We've got to look at it across, uh, across the Gospels, looking at, at the, different, the, the different ones, whether it be Mark or Luke or Matthew or John. We've got to take them all together if we're going to understand the meaning of this passage. Right? If you're in our biblical hermeneutics class, you ought to know this. Like Context is everything for understanding a passage. This passage takes place in a larger context in which Jesus is instructing the twelve disciples. He is teaching them, his appointed ones, very carefully as to what it means to follow him. Right? His focus is on James, John, all the others, the twelve, the ones whom he's appointed, the ones whom he is called to be his disciples. So before we can begin to understand it in our present context and think about what this passage means for us to, to be united together, or even the first century church that Mark was writing to, we have to understand what Jesus is saying to the twelve and get that before we can apply it and principalize it towards ourselves. These twelve, they've, they've been walking with Jesus for well over a year now, all right? And after all this time, they still do not get what it means to be a disciple. They still don't understand. But we saw recently in chapter 8, God has opened Peter's eyes. He now recognizes that Jesus is the Christ. But as soon as Jesus tells him what that means, the purpose of the Christ, Peter refuses it. He rejects it. He can't believe that, that Jesus would have to suffer and be rejected and die and rise again. He won't take it. He still has his own agenda in mind. He's still unwilling to say, okay, I, I'm willing to embrace what you mean, Jesus. I'm willing to accept what you mean for the Christ. I, instead, he, he says, no, 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 no. That can't happen. I can't follow a Christ who suffers and dies and rises again. He's still rejecting it. He's not fully submitting himself to Christ and his purposes. And even after this, Jesus reveals his true glory to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. He goes up there. His pre-existent glory is shown to them. You know, they come down from the mountain. And as soon as they come down, despite hearing what Jesus has just said, despite seeing this vision of Jesus' glory, Peter, along with the others, are arguing with one another over who's the greatest. It's a matter of self-exaltation. Which one's best? I'm the best. No, no, no. I am. I got to see this. I got to do this. No, no, no. Me, me, me. Right? So they're still focused on their own ambitions, on their own desires, on their own dreams, on their own purposes, rather than Jesus and His. They're still arguing over who's the greatest. They're still motivated by what they want Jesus to be for them and what they can gain from Him. Right? They're not willing to just kind of open their eyes up to who Jesus is and what this requires of them, right? They're still coming as the authority. Do you see? This is what they're doing. They're concerned about power and status and reward, and so they clamor for position. They're proclaiming themselves rather than Him. And if we're going to pursue unity under Christ, we have to get who Jesus is. And we have to be willing to follow that. Okay, so the first principle behind true Christian unity is that we come to terms with who Jesus is. And that's doctrinal, folks. That's theology. You can't get around it. And that has implications for your life. We can't just say, okay, this is what I want Jesus to be for me, and therefore I'm going to find people that are like me. Or I'm going to find people that at least won't tell me that I'm wrong. And then we can be unified. That's not unity at all. Then steps in this, this unknown exorcist. 
Right? And, and for all we know about him is what John tells us there in verse 38. He says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. This man is casting out demons, and he's doing it in Jesus' name. Right? He's not preaching or teaching. All we know about him is that, that he is casting out demons. He's not preaching and teaching like John the Baptist was. He's not doing it in the same way that the twelve were. He's only doing exorcisms. Okay? That's important. And even though he's not preaching and teaching, the, the fact that he's doing this in Christ's name is significant, folks, because if we remember the context, the religious leaders of the day have already determined that Jesus was working under the power of Satan. Okay? He cast out demons by the power of Satan. And so anyone who would go and cast out demons in Jesus' name is putting themselves in harm's way. They're making themselves outcasts to the religious pattern of the day, and they're basically putting themselves in, in the religious leaders' minds in league with Satan. All right? And if they're going to go around professing that, they could be stoned to death for it. This man is putting his life at risk for what he's doing. Okay? Another fact that we see about this man is that he has power. He has literal power in the name of Christ. Okay? He's not using Jesus' name as some incantation or magic spell, like using the words hocus-pocus to make a bunny rabbit disappear, right? He's not like Simon the Magician in Acts 8, who wanted to try to buy the ability to impart the Holy Spirit. He's not like those sons of Sceva in Acts 19, who did not believe in Jesus, but saw that, that Paul and the other apostles, they had power in Jesus' name, so they start using Jesus' name to try to cast out demons, and the demons are like, hey, we know Jesus, we know Paul, but you, we got no idea. And so they put a whooping on them, and they have to run away naked and wounded, right? And they're not using it in the same way. I mean, this guy is clearly using Jesus' name as a symbol of power, and the demons are fleeing, right? So this is an indication of some faith at work there. He's not like Simon the Magician. He's not like these black-eyed sons of Sceva, right? He has a real power and it's it's evident that it's it has its effect we also know that this man is not one of the 12 nor is he a part of that larger body of disciples who had been following jesus around they didn't know who he was he was a stranger to them right he's not in the a crowd he's not even in the b crowd he's a nobody and they didn't like it and he's clearly not recognizing the authority of the disciples Right? Because they told him to stop, and he didn't do it. He just kept right on going. He's com he completely ignored them. Right? Maybe he doesn't even know who they are. We don't, we don't really know. So they don't like it, and they go tell Daddy, right? They, they, they take their ball, and they go home. And for all that we can see, though, in this man, is that he is motivated. He's motivated by a pure desire to help others by freeing them from bondage to slavery from these demons, right? And he's doing it in the powerful name of Jesus. All the indication we have is that he is, his motives are pure. He's unwilling to stop helping just because Jesus' disciples are on some kind of power trip. He still continues to do what he's doing. He's doing good, and he's doing it in the power of Jesus' name, and he's not bringing harm to anyone, okay? So his motives are pure. The disciples, though, it's a different matter for them. The disciples, they're clearly jealous, Okay? If you remember back in verse 17, nine of them had just failed to drive out a demon. But here's this guy, and he's, he's succeeding left and right. 
He's repeatedly casting out demons, and they were not able to do that just a little while ago. All right? They have been arguing over who's the greatest. And Jesus responds to them in verse 37 by taking this small child, this insignificant child, and placing it in front of them and saying, Listen, whoever receives one such child, someone who is lowly, someone who is insignificant, someone who is unknown, someone who is, is the least in my name, that person receives me. Right? And then here's this lowly, insignificant, nobody exorcist that is driving out demons and it's succeeding. We also notice that John says in the end of verse 38, we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Why didn't he say, well, he's not following you? I mean, Jesus is the authority here. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. Why didn't you say, we tried to stop him because he's not following you? No, they said, he's not following us. And you can see in that pronoun that these guys are on a power trip, right? That, that John is exalting himself, that he is proud, that he is, is trying to set up the twelve as some sort of special authority on the level of Jesus. Right? He's clamoring for position. He wanted him to stop because this guy didn't know who he was and he wasn't willing to follow John's orders. Right? He's putting himself in authority. In other words, he's saying, I want him to stop because he's not following me. That's really what John is saying here. And it ought to be clear to us by now that John and the other disciples are motivated by pride. They're, they're motivated by their self-perception of their own power. They're motivated by jealousy. Instead of celebrating the fact that, that the power of Jesus is being manifest in powerful ways in this man's life, instead, they tell him to stop because they don't know him. He's not one of them. They don't like him. He hasn't got their permission. And he's doing what they have been unable to do. So when it comes to this issue of Christian unity, we must first examine our motives. Why are we separating ourselves from others? Okay? Why are we setting up boundaries? Why are, are, we, are we not embracing them as one of us? Is it, is it because we don't know them? Is it because they're not in our clique, whether that be our denomination or our organization or our ministry or our group or just my group of friends? Is it because I, I don't like their style, because they don't do things the way that I want them to do, because they don't recognize me for who I am, right? They don't recognize my experience. They don't recognize my authority. And so they're doing their own thing. Is that why we're separating ourselves from them? Are we jealous over the fact that they might have more money or more resources or, or more conversions than we do? Right? Is it, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we would see that, that many of our disassociations, much of our disunity, is the result of petty, impure motives rather than pure ones. Friends, our divisions, when the result of impure motives... Uh, it, it is sin. That's just the way it is. It's sin. All right? We are called on the basis of our being united with Christ to pursue unity and peace with one another. All who call in the name, uh, on the name of Christ who are saved, we are to pursue unity with them. All right? To do this requires faith in Jesus. It does. 
We can't have unity apart from faith in Jesus. But that means that we have to agree upon who Jesus is, right? We have to agree upon why he came. We have to agree upon what it means to follow him, all right? If I think that Jesus is a good moral teacher, you think he's the son of God, we don't agree on that. We can't be unified, all right? If I think that, that Jesus' sacrifice was necessary in order to satisfy the wrath of God against sin, but you're just, you think it's a moral example of how we should selflessly love and sacrifice for one another, we can't have unity. Because we don't agree on who Jesus is. Right? If, if I believe that Jesus rose three days after being buried in a tomb from the grave in order to show that he was the Son of God, in order to confirm that God's wrath against sin has been satisfied, in order to guarantee that all will stand before him in judgment and have to give an account of their lives before him, and you're just kind of questioning the resurrection, we cannot be unified because we don't agree on who Jesus is. Okay? We have to have faith. And when there is faith, when there is that, that agreement in who Jesus is, why he came and what it means to follow him, then we should rejoice in and hope in and be thankful for what he has done and what he is doing, even if it doesn't come through us. Right? They should have celebrated the fact that, that this man was casting out demons in Jesus' name. Unity requires a self-sacrificing, others-preferring love, otherwise called brotherly affection or brotherly love. I mean, John says this later on in John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Okay? That's a distinguishing mark for us. And we must pursue it. Unity requires humility. Not exalting ourselves or indulging in these petty jealousies, but preferring others and rejoicing in their successes. Do you realize that you are not the only person that, God, that Jesus can work through? Now you laugh at that, but it's amazing how often we think that. Or that Jesus can only work through my organization or through my church or through my denomination or whatever my affiliation is. Right? We so often think that and we separate ourselves from it. Guys, Jesus is working in millions of ways throughout the world and you will never know it. He is working here and now in ways that you will never, ever know. All right? This ministry of reconciliation that's happening that we're ambassadors of, we're just ambassadors. It's his ministry of reconciliation. This is Jesus' ministry. Our ministry here at Redeemer Church is not our ministry here at Redeemer Church. It's Jesus' ministry of you know through Redeemer Church. But it's his ministry. He's doing it. It goes on. And we have to recognize that. Otherwise, we will separate ourselves. We will get angry. We will divide. We will say, I can only do this and not this because it's an either-or kind of deal. And realize, no, 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 no. We've got to come to it in terms of what Jesus wants, what he requires, and we have to submit ourselves to that. And let's face it, guys. True unity requires a whole lot of repentance because we have selfish motives in us all the time. And they're going to come to the forefront all the time. What are we going to do with that? We need to turn away from it and follow Christ. Right? And true unity requires the Holy Spirit. Right? If you're not saved, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, we can't be unified. We can't. It's through the Holy Spirit that, that unification, and only through the Holy Spirit, that unification can even occur. Right? So believers and unbelievers can't experience true unity. Right? Now, that doesn't mean that we can't, we can't have relationships with them. We can't do things with them. We should. 
We need to pursue those things. But realize that there is going to be a disconnect between our unity with believers and with unbelievers. When we come to an issue of unity or disunity, we must first humbly discern our motives and seek to align them with the will of Christ. Okay? This leads to my second point. True unity requires careful discernment. Okay? Just because we are the solution um, of unity uh, and, and motives, it's not based upon us giving lip service to Jesus. Okay? It, the, the solution is not there in just because people profess Christ. Okay, now we know we're Christians, we're all good, let, let, let's move on from here. No, there's more that we have to think about than that. I mean, just because divisions have been the result of sinful motives, that doesn't mean that we just turn off our brains and just unite together, right? We still have to think carefully. Our goal is not to see all 38,000 of these self-professed Christians to, you know, denominations to come together and, and have some big, you know, sing song of kumbaya around a campfire. I mean, that's not our ultimate goal. We need discernment. We have to use discernment. Now, you may be asking, okay, Chet, where do you see discernment in this text? Where do you really see it? I mean, look, look for it, okay? You don't see it outright, but it's there. This is where I get to play the Jesus card, right? The card that trumps everything. Jesus card, right? Jesus is the perfect discerner of the heart. I mean, we've already seen throughout Mark over and over and over again. I mean, Mark 2, 8, uh, Mark 3, 5, Mark 7, 6 through 13, Mark 8, 17, Mark 8, 33, how Jesus knows perfectly the mind, heart, and faith of the people who are around him. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what they believe. He knows the motives of their hearts. And he can confirm that perfectly in ways that you and I can't because he is the son of the all-knowing, all-seeing God. He's got that right. He has that privilege. He knows. He has that advantage that you and I do not have. And knowing the heart of this unfamiliar exorcist, he says to John in verses 38 through 40, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For no one... Uh, for one who is not against us is for us. Right? Jesus, knowing this man's heart, says, don't stop him. He is doing a mighty work in my name. He is doing it in my name. And if he's doing it in my name, he's not going to just turn around and deny me. He's not going to turn around and blaspheme against me. He's not going to immediately turn around and curse me. All right? He's going to be with me. If he's And if he's... He's not like these religious leaders who are denying me. He's proclaiming my name. Therefore, he is for us. His actions are in line with my actions, and he is proclaiming my name. So let him continue. Okay? Now, Jesus is not talking about some sort of universal acceptance for all of those who are neutral or apathetic or haven't kind of made a decision about Jesus yet. Okay, when he says those who are not against us are for us, he's not saying, listen... Everybody that's not decidedly against me is for me. They're on our side. That's not what Jesus is saying. Wow. Check one, two. You got me? Keep going. Okay, so anyway, sorry about that. I won't touch my thing anymore. Um, I just did. 
<laughs> it's hard not to do. Where was I? Uh, yeah, so, okay, Jesus is not talking about this universal acceptance for all of those who are not decidedly against Jesus, right? We have to take this passage along with Matthew 12:30, where Jesus says there, hey, listen, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Okay, so if you put these two verses together, which say the opposite things, then you kind of understand with Jesus, there is no middle ground. There's no such thing as neutral or apathetic or indifference with Jesus. Indifference equals hate with Jesus. Right. So you are either for him or you are against him. It's an either or there. And Jesus defines that for us. We don't get to define that. He does. So. This guy is not against Jesus. He's not speaking evil of Jesus. He is doing powerful things in Jesus' name, and Jesus knows this man's heart. Okay, So he is for us. Therefore, do not stop him. That's the discernment of Jesus that we see in this passage. And you might say, well, okay, that's great. I'm not Jesus. I'm not the Son of God. I do not have that perfect ability to discern. So, so how am I, as a follower of Christ, supposed to approach a situation like this? How should we go about discerning the proper level of unity from this passage? All right? Well, first off, we have to keep in mind that we do have the Word of God and we have the Spirit of God. Okay? If you are a Christian, a believer in Christ, you have all you need for life and godliness. You have the mind of Christ. It has been given to you. All right? So we, 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 we need both in order to, to, to discern how to approach an unknown brother. Right? We can't just rely upon our feelings. Well, I like that guy. Seems like a nice guy. You know, that's good, warm, fuzzy feelings about him. That's got to be the spirit, right? Now we can't just take that, and nor can we just kind of blindly jump into it and kind of take this uh, spiritless, self-exalting understanding of the word, you know, in order to determine whether or not this is a so-called brother. No, we, it takes both. It takes the Holy Spirit working through the Word to help us to understand. And we've been given that gift. We've been given that priority, so we can we can approach unity that way. We can, de- we can determine whether or not he is a believer or not. But another thing is we need to pay close attention to the context here. Okay, We've already seen in this passage that it, it takes place in the context of Jesus instructing the 12 disciples. Right? He's, he's got a limited amount of time. He's focusing his energy. He's focusing his efforts on these 12, on what it means to follow him. Right? He's focused on them. And so um, notice even how the pronouns change in this passage you start out in verse 38 and it's talking about this unknown exorcist right it's using him and then it switches to i and me talking about jesus and then in verse 40 it switches to us now the the disciples are included in there with jesus and then in verses 41 and 42 the focus is solely on the disciples right jesus is just taking us on a trip away from this man to focusing solely on the disciples it's it's pretty amazing. Um, and Jesus is the unifying factor as this progresses from him to me to us to you. All right? And another contextual clue that we have that we cannot forget is that this man is only casting out demons. He's not preaching and teaching, and he's not doing anything that's heretical. That's important, all right? We've got to keep that in mind, what this guy's actually doing, right? Instead, he's doing what Jesus did in Jesus' name, all right? The situation would be different if he was teaching false doctrine about Jesus. 
if he was doing something that was untrue. And we've, we've already seen that Jesus has rebuked time and time again those religious leaders who say false things about him. Right? Jesus, in that case, would stop this man. But this man, is everything he's doing is consistent with Jesus. He's not doing anything that's heretical. And so he doesn't stop him. But what we see in the New Testament church, if you go on to see how this plays out, is that they do stop false teachers. They do segregate themselves who are teaching wrong doctrine about Jesus, who are lying about him, who are saying false truths, right? They do remove themselves from fellowship. I mean, think about the church discipline issue in 1 Corinthians 5 or the the false brothers in 2 Corinthians 11 and Galatians 2. Think about the false teachers in 2 Peter 2 or or uh, uh, 1 John 4, and think about Jude's scathing rebuke of those who would pervert the grace of God into licentiousness. Right? There is reason to separate, and in that issue requires discernment. I have to look at those things carefully. We also have to keep in mind that Jesus says, don't stop him. But Jesus doesn't say, okay, you need to go back over to him. You need to apologize. You need to accept him as a brother and you need to bring him with you. Right? Jesus has different purpose in mind for this man than he does for his disciples. Jesus has a different mission in mind. Okay? And so unity doesn't mean that you're in the same place at the same time doing exactly the same thing. Does it? Right? And then also we have to keep in mind that this event occurs before Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. This is important because up to now, the disciples themselves don't even know what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Any type of faith that Jesus sees and commends of people is an incomplete faith because they don't have the true and complete gospel. They don't understand how Jesus' death and resurrection fits into it. It's an incomplete deal. It's only after Jesus' death and resurrection that that the church is established. It's only after Jesus' death and resurrection that true doctrine can be understood, that the gospel is commended in all its truthfulness, in all its glory. It's only then that the church receives the Holy Spirit to be able to help in this discernment process of a true believer and an unbeliever or a so-called believer. Okay, we have to keep the context in mind if we're going to come to this passage so that we don't just abuse it and say, hey, we just need to all get along. Right. This passage still requires careful discernment. So this is it's not simply about embracing others in Christian unity apart from the careful discernment of the word and spirit. We still must test everything to see whether or not it is from God. This starts with our motives, but it branches out to looking at issues of doctrine, issues of truth, and being careful to understand where we can be united and where we need to separate and where there are times where we need to sharpen each other's understandings, right? Because this not only affects doctrinal truth, it also affects methodology because, let's face it, there's a lot of times and a lot of situations where we have right doctrine and we apply it completely wrong. Right? There's a difference between spoken theology and lived theology. Big integrity gap right there. Okay? And we need to deal with that. And we see this happen. We've seen this happen across organizations. Right? We've seen that in, in church and parachurch relationships. And we've got to deal with it. We don't just ignore it and just kind of go on. We've got to change it. Alright? And it's got to be based upon the truth. And that requires discernment. We need 
to also get over this idea that unity is more important than truth. Okay? Because unity cannot truly be had if our truth and our biblical conviction is squishy. It can't. All right? We're not truly unified if we have to keep trimming back doctrinal, biblical conviction to reach some sort of lowest common denominator that everybody can agree upon. Okay? We're just watering everything else down. And it leads to just ambiguity. And doctrinal ambiguity leads to ambiguity in everything else. It spreads to everything. Ambiguity leads to ambivalence, not unity. So we can only truly be unified as we are acting out of the same biblical conviction. And that requires discernment. So we pursue unity, yes. But we must realize that truth and purity are necessary for unity. So not only does truth, uh, true unity require pure motive and careful discernment, true unity requires a single goal that we seek to glorify Christ alone. If you haven't figured it out by now, Jesus is the unifying factor in this encounter, right? In this situation. He is the focus. He is the goal. Let's go back and I want us to read this text with the view on Christ. Okay? Look at it. Okay? Look at it carefully. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for the one who does a mighty work in my name will not soon be afterward be able to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. I mean, did you hear it? Did you hear what Jesus is saying? This man is casting out demons in Jesus' name. Jesus didn't stop him because he's doing mighty works in Jesus' name. He will not soon speak evil of Jesus. This man is for Jesus. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Jesus, he will be rewarded. And whoever would cause one who believes in Jesus to sin, he will be cursed. What matters most is that Jesus' name is being proclaimed so that people believe in him. That is what matters most. It's fine that this man is not following us because he is proclaiming me. It's the same attitude that Paul has in Philippians 1 of those who preach Christ out of envy and rivalry of Paul. He says, listen, I can rejoice whether in pretense or in truth because Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. He didn't care that they were jealous of Paul and they were doing it out of envy. They were doing it out of rivalry. He he rejoiced in the fact that Jesus was being proclaimed. What matters most is that Jesus is being glorified here. Even more so, everything that is done to a believer is done for the glory of Christ. Back in verse 37, we saw that that if someone receives the least, they receive the insignificant, the lowly, in Jesus' name, then they receive Jesus. This idea is continued in verse 40, where, where he says, the one who is not against us is for us. There is such a connection between the disciples of Christ and Christ that whoever is for Christ is for you, and whoever is against Christ is against you. 
Right? You see the unification there. And you also see it in verses 41 and 42. Now, don't get thrown off by the uninspired subheading. All right? That's not God's word to you on how that passage should be divided. It continues. It's one thought all the way through. And actually, it's better to include verse 42 with 41 because you see it follow the pattern of blessing and curse that you see throughout Scripture over and over and over again. Those who bless you will be blessed by Jesus. Those who curse you, causing you to sin, will be cursed. It doesn't matter how small or insignificant the person is. What matters is is that whatever you do to the least of these, you do unto me. It doesn't matter how small or seemingly insignificant the deed that is done in his name. Nothing that is done to the glory of Jesus Christ will go unnoticed. He will see it. All right? It doesn't slip away from him. Friends, Jesus knows your heart. He knows whether or not you are doing all things to the glory of his name. It doesn't matter how great you are or insignificant that you feel. It doesn't matter whether you have some prestigious position, whether you're in full-time ministry, like that means something, or not. It doesn't matter how great the deed is or seemingly insignificant and trivial the deed is. It never goes unnoticed. Jesus sees it. And when it's done in his name, you will be rewarded. Those who bless his children will be blessed. Those who curse them will be cursed. And in either situation, Jesus gets the glory. You guys ever thought about that? That Jesus gets the glory even when someone is justly condemned? Right? We often think about it when someone is rewarded for being saved, but we, we often neglect that it's the other way around. When someone blesses you in the name of Christ and in his kindness, Jesus eternally rewards you, rewards their act of faith, then he gets the glory. But also when others curse you and lead you, his children who believe in him to sin, they will be cursed. It would be better for a millstone to be hung around their neck and then thrown into the sea because that that fate is worse than the fate that they will endure in causing you to sin. They will be cursed. Even in that, Jesus gets the glory because his righteousness, his justice, his perfect love, his defense of his children is being upheld. It's glorious. We don't like it, but it's glorious. In everything that is done for us, everything that is done through us, everything that is done to us, whether good or bad, it is for the glory of Christ alone. The real issue is whether or not you are truly living for his glory. Friends, if our desire is to glorify Christ alone, then our motives will become more and more pure. If our desire is is to serve Christ alone, to bring glory to Christ, to know Him, to be known by Him, to study Him carefully, right, to tell others about Him, then our doctrine is going to improve. We will become more discerning, right? And as we seek to glorify Christ alone, setting our hope, setting our focus, setting our trajectory in all of life upon Him, not upon one another, we will be more unified. Do you recognize that? Do you see that? 
But only as we glorify Christ alone, as we diligently and reverently and humbly and submissively become more and more and more and more and more like Him, to be transformed by His Word and Spirit, and in becoming like Him, we will be unified. So as we think about what it means to be unified in Christ, we must examine our motives. We must be carefully discerning, and we must pursue the glory of Christ alone. I'm going to end with a quote from A.W. Tozer in his classic work, The Pursuit of God. He writes, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to one another? They are of one accord not by being tuned to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship with one another. Friends, true unity, true Christian unity requires pure motives and careful discernment as we seek to glorify Christ alone. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for your kindness and mercy to us. That we are a people who radically tries to divide and separate ourselves out of our sin. Try to exalt ourselves to make much of ourselves. But in your mercy, you have made a way through your precious and exalted Son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that as we walk out of here, when we think about unity, we wouldn't think about unity as separated from truth. We wouldn't think about unity as focusing on one another, but that we would pursue with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength the glory of Jesus Christ. And in that, our motives are made pure. In that, we think more carefully and discerningly. And in that, we truly become unified. Help us know how to play this out in our individual lives in our relationships with others, and help us to glorify Christ in all that we do. It's in his name we pray. Amen.